So several years ago, many years ago, let's, I'm not going to say how long because I'm old, but I was, uh, I used to work in restaurants, you know that. If you've been around for a while, you know that. So a lot of my stories come from that season because that was a rather large season of my life. But there was a season when I was early on in my leadership career that um, I really felt like I should get a promotion that I was not getting. You ever been there? You feel like you should get something, like you deserve something and you're not getting it? I really felt like I could do the job better than my boss could. And I thought, why is this person in this job when I could do it so much better? And my boss's boss at the time pulled me aside one day and sat me out on a curb. I could tell you where the building is in Bexley. Right outside the restaurant, we sat on a curb together. And he said to me, Rob, I really like you. But you're a jerk. <laughs> right? Pure and simple, you're a jerk. <laughs> the story gets better, Holly. Okay. So he says, and I mean that in the most loving way I can think of. It's a great conversation, right? He goes, look, you're intelligent. You know the business. You know what needs to be done and how. But the truth is, um, you don't appreciate people. You don't appreciate them at all. You don't appreciate the contributions they make. You don't appreciate the value that they bring. You don't love them in any way, shape, or form. And I'm here to tell you right now that unless you figure that out, in the next six months, you're either going to get promoted or you're going to get fired. You decide. You know those moments in your life where you just look back and you go, this was life-changing stuff. Now my response, immediate response was, I was mad. Because I had already decided I knew better than everybody else. So why, who are you to tell me that I am not who I think I am or that I'm not capable of doing the things I think I'm capable of doing. But the thing was, his name was Brian, Brian Augustine, and he, he so happens to be a follower of Jesus Christ. The thing is that Brian was correct. He was accurate in his assessment. I was not who I needed to be. If I wanted to, to lead people, because that's really what it comes down to. It's not about a business. It's about leading people. And if I wanted to lead people, I needed to love them. I needed to appreciate them. I needed to see them for who God made them to be. He didn't say all that. He just says you need to appreciate what they bring to the table and their value. I would say I need to see them as God intended them to be, as who he made them to be. He was, he was correct. It was warranted 
The way I was thinking, the way I was acting wasn't helpful, not just for my career, but more importantly, for the people I was charged with leading. He needed to say this for everybody's sake. It was necessary to improve the work life of those I managed, and believe it or not, it was compassionate. Because in being honest, he gave me a chance to change. He gave me an opportunity to grow. He did something that's very, very hard for us to do in our minds sometimes. He balanced justice and mercy. He balanced doing the right thing with recognizing that I needed some mercy right now if I was ever hoping to grow or change or learn to lead better. And that's still a journey, right? It's always a journey. But that's, I think, one of the challenges that we have with the book of Revelation is because it, it gives us this sense of God's justice being meted out, right? We're in the end times and God's justice is being meted out upon the world. But there's also this tinge of mercy through it, that, but that really we see the most merciful portions of who our God is in other texts more readily. We see it in the Gospels, right? as he, he lays down his life for us. We see as he pleads and says, Father, forgive them for the things that they have done, right? We see the mercy that is Jesus. And then we get into Revelation, and we see less of that mercy, although it's there. It's just far less blatant because we get tied into the imagery and the ultimate justice that must come. Because it's wonderful that we serve a merciful God, but we also serve a just one. And sometimes those two images are really difficult to mesh together. In our text today, he does just that. We're going to go through Revelation chapter 5. I read 4 this morning. We're going to finish this worship scene at the throne in heaven in chapter 5. And there's two images we're going to pay attention to. The, the image of the lion and the image of the lamb. They are both here in this text. Which one do you think justice is? The lion. Which one do you think mercy is? The lamb. Pay attention to the roles they take. Pay attention to which one is the one that reaches out to the Lord and who the Lord accepts and loves. And recognize that one doesn't discount the other. They are both required so if you would open your bibles to revelation chapter 5 okay we're experimenting this is four uh, five see this is what happens when you let rob do things okay there you go it says this, Revelation 5, verses 1 through 3 says, Then I saw in the right hand of the one seated on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides sealed with the seven seals. I also saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open it or even Look in it. It's a continuation of chapter 4. We see them in this throne room, and we see this one seated on the throne. Do you remember in chapter 4, when we just read it this morning, how they described this person sitting on the throne? 
It said he was, he looked like he was jasper and carnelian stone. These are bright, shining, gleaming stones of not just great value, but great luminance. They're designed to be incredibly breathtaking. They refer to Exodus chapter 28 and 39 where they are adorning, those stones are said to be adorning, especially carnelian, adorning the breastplate of the high priest. And we see them also in Ezekiel 28 when they're used to describe the beauty and the perfection that was the Garden of Eden. So there's this, this reference even at the end times to a return of the, to the beginning. You remember the beginning, the beginning before the fall, before they took of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. The beginning where their thoughts were pure, their actions were pure, they had done nothing wrong ever. This place that was intended to be a paradise, a place of holiness, a place of perfection, a place where the Lord chose to say, I will call this home. I will sit with you. I will be with you. That's what it says when, he, when he's taking a Sabbath. He's not taking a Sabbath at the end of creation because he's tired. He's taking it because he's taking his place at the throne of the temple. He is there with his people. And so you're intended to see as you read this that the holiness, the perfection, the pure joy and beauty of Eden sits before them on this throne. Something that is outside most of our mind's eyes as we, we try to process what that would look like. We spend a lot of energy trying to figure out what heaven would look like. Whatever you think it is, it's probably way better. Because we've never experienced perfection in our lives. Our reference points are a bit low. The throne room is really critical for us to understand if we're going to understand Revelation at all. The throne, and the ultimate question of Revelation, who's on the throne? Who is in charge? Who's really the ruler of this earth? This really and, and all of creation. This represents the basic theme of Revelation. And if we don't spend a minute kind of walking through the throne and the one seated on the throne and what it means to be on the throne, we're going to miss out on the entirety of the book. Because remember, what is the ultimate message of Revelation? God, God wins. And God can only win if he is in charge. And that might be exemplified here, no it is, by the one who is seated on the throne. The king, the ultimate king. If you remember, we just read in chapter 4, there were 24 thrones around his throne. They're not equal. You get that, right? You've got the throne and you've got the thrones. <laughs> right? Be really clear about that. His throne, and it's, this is important for us to understand. Who sits on it? Who owns the throne? Who sees everything and knows everything? And whose throne will be left when all is said and done? There will only be one, and it will be the Lord's. 
we need to clearly, clearly hear that. Because sometimes I think we think principalities and other powers and other authorities, including our own wonderful country, will somehow be here when it's all said and done. I love you all. It will not be. I was telling somebody I read Revelation a bunch of times lately. I have not seen United States of America anywhere in it. And that's not to say that God doesn't have work for us to do in this time, in this place, in this country, and that we aren't immensely fortunate to be here. We are. Make no mistakes. But when this is all said and done, the throne that's going to be left standing is the Lord's. And it's the Lord's that we should serve over and above anything else, including our own personal little thrones. And yes, I'm trying to make that as minor and minuscule and cheesy as I can because I, I want you to hear sometimes we don't treat them as little thrones. We treat them as bigger ones than they really are. And then we're introduced to this in this section, this mighty angel. The mighty angel wasn't there in chapter 4. We see him show up almost like challenging somebody to step up. Who do you think you are? All right, who is it? Of all you people in this room, which one of you is going to be worthy enough to step up and take the scroll? Bring it. I want to see this, right? It's almost like a dare. But he knows that there's only one that's worthy. The scroll itself, the contents of the scroll, what do you think is in it? Any guesses? Covenants, that's a great guess. Could be covenants, could be treaties. Some have said it was a, an eternal treaty. Some have said it was, it was sealed. They were sealed prophecies and hidden revelations. Things that only God knows and he was waiting till the end of time. We know that the scroll is sealed with seven seals. What does the number seven mean? You said it. Complete. It is complete. It could mean that the seven seals means it's completely sealed from human eyes. You're never going to see it or never going to know what's in it. And you just got to be okay with that. It could mean that it's complete in its contents. Right? It's complete in its glory. It's complete in its judgment. It's complete in its prophecy. But the truth is, we don't really know what's, what's in it. We're never told what's in it. Which leads me to believe it's not the contents that are of great importance. So then what is the value of the scroll? What do you think it is? Why the scroll? What does it mean? Why is it so important that someone be worthy of opening it? Any guesses? It's our redemption. It is the fullness of God revealed, and it is, it is the, the eternal will of God being lived out and revealed. It's important that we don't know the precise contents because it doesn't matter what those contents are. What matters is that God is still in charge and his will is being revealed that our salvation is being offered 
that there is one who is worthy. Again, if you don't believe God's in charge, it's really hard to recognize what's going on here. What we do know is that no one in this world or in heaven or in the earth or under the earth or on the earth is worthy of opening it or even seeing it. As we're about to look, this disturbs John to no end. It was John speaking in the next two verses. It says, I wept and wept because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or even to look into it. Then one of the elders, if you remember from chapter 4, there's 24 of them, said to me, do not weep. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he was able to open the scroll and its seven seals. This sealed content that could not be opened and not in God's will not be fulfilled without it being opened and being revealed, there is only one that can do that. And the elders say, fear not, we know who he is. Why do you think John wept? Why do you think John was crying that it could not have been opened? I'll give you a couple theories. First, if you remember, John was the last living apostle. Do you think John maybe was hoping he'd be the one that got to open the scroll? I think it would be easy to get there. If you were the last one and you're listening to the words of God and the words of the prophecies and the letters that, that we're all writing down as letters now, these were, these were letters being exchanged between the churches. They, many of the apostles and the followers of Jesus believed that it was coming now, right? It would come in their lifetime. And for John to be sitting here as the final one left, it would be easy for him to get to the place where he would say, yes, Jesus is going to let me open this and usher in his kingdom because John wants that. John wants the day of the Lord to come. John wants Jesus to return, just as we all do. I think maybe he wept because his dreams were shattered. I think maybe he wept because the day of the Lord was not going to come right here, right now, in this moment. If the scroll remained sealed, God's will would not be fulfilled and lived out. And I think he was mourning. We see the elders. There are 24 again, 24 elders. Some have speculated there are 12 from the 12 tribes of Judah and the 12 apostles. That would make sense, right? There's a whole other set of discussions that opens up about um, are there two covenants or just one? We can get into that at another time because that's a lengthy discussion. Before this, in chapter 4, we saw these 24 elders were dressed in white. What does that mean to be dressed in white? Pure, clean. These elders had been made clean, I would guess, by the washing of the blood of the Lamb. We know that they had their own mini thrones, right? We talked about that. They had been given status and value here on this earth in some way, shape, or form, and even before the Lord, right? Because that throne doesn't happen unless God puts them there, <laughs> builds it and puts them on it. 
But we also saw at the end of chapter 4 that they fell before the throne of God. That means they fell out of their own thrones and laid themselves before his. They worshipped, and they went so far at the end of chapter 4 as to cast their crowns away. That's so important. I'm reminded of what Paul says to the Philippians in Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. He says, but everything that was gained to me, I have considered it to be a loss because of Christ. More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in the view of the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. These kings, these elders, I guess, have given up, have chosen to say, everything I think I have, just like Paul did, everything, my place, my position, the value that even you've given to me are not worth anything in light of what I'm seeing right now. in light of the one who is seated on the throne, who is Jasper and Carnelian, and whose the throne, the surround of the throne was like emerald, if you remember that too, this, this glorious sight that is beyond all compare. Anything I ever thought or considered to be important or of value to me, oh, it's nothing. I can't even believe I had this stupid crown on my head. I don't even want this. I want you. It is a wholehearted trade away from anything earthly and all completely 100% committed towards the heavenly things of God, to what he is presenting before them right here and right now. Nothing else exists. They might also be recognizing that even if they thought they were worthy before because they had these thrones and these crowns, they've recognized in his presence that it's not about them either. And then we're introduced to the lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he is able to open the seven seals. That phrase, the lion of Judah, is first introduced in Genesis chapter 40, chapter 28, or 40, 48. It says, Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on their necks of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. Judah is a young lion. My son, you return from the kill. He crouches, he lies down like a lion or a lioness. Who dares rouse him? Make no mistake, when the lion of Judah is showing up, this is a soldier who's been through the battle. This is a general who has taken on all the principalities of evil. Wherever it might be springing up, whatever Satan might be doing or his demons might be doing, this is the guy who looked at the, the demoniac and said, get out of this guy. And they all ran to pigs and said, please don't kill us. And then the pigs ran off the cliff. That's an amazing story. Read it. <laughs> then you're like, why'd the pigs jump off? More symbolism. We can get it out another time. I could do this all day. But, but this is a soldier who has conquered anything that might come up against him. I'm going to see a victory for my battle belongs to the Lord. This is the Lord who is taking on all comers. 
He's also of the root of David. The root of David. We see that in Isaiah chapter 11. It says, Then a shoot growing up from the stump of Jesse, who is whose? Dad? David's. And a branch from its roots will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, a spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of counsel and of strength, a spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And then we see it again in 2 Samuel chapter 7, where he's speaking of the Davidic covenant that he's establishing between God and, and David through the prophet Nathan. He's a lion, the lion of Judah. Then we see him refer to it again, this root of David. In Psalm 110, as David writes, this is my declaration to the Lord, of the Lord to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. That verse in Psalm 110, Jesus actually uses when he speaks to the Pharisees about who is the Messiah, right? And the Pharisees say, oh, he's the, he's the son of David. He's the root of David. He's from David, right? But he's not, he's not godly or he's not divine in any way, shape, or form. That's kind of the implication. And Jesus says, well, I'm reading Psalm 110. Have you read Psalm 110? He probably didn't say Psalm 110 because that wasn't a thing then. I'm reading Psalm 110, and it says, to, of the Lord to my Lord. So if David calls him Lord, then how can he be also his son? And then it says, in Jesus' great, one of his great mic drop moments, he says, it says, no one was able to answer him at all, and from that day on, nobody dared question him anymore. Mic drop, walk away. So we see him described as this soldier, this soldier in the, in the, in the image of David in many ways, shape, or form, because David conquered a ton of physical lands. And it's really, I believe, what the disciples expected to see when Jesus came. I don't think they truly got it until he, in Acts chapter 1 when he ascended onto heaven and said, oh yeah, I'm not coming back with this army of generals and weapons and chariots and ready to shoot people. I'm going to conquer differently. I really think many of them thought, this is it. He's coming with this root of David. But, but if, if the lion didn't physically conquer the earth yet, and I'm sitting here, and I don't think he has, right? He physically conquered the earth. And what has he conquered? Death. He has conquered death. He has conquered... Say what? What would you say? The last enemy is death. And he has already conquered it. He has already conquered evil in the heavens. All the battles are already decided. We're going to read about some battles, right? But remember, when the story's all said and done, what happens? God wins. We're going to keep repeating that. Because I think we need to remember that. As our life is struggling and we're having challenges, God wins. No matter what you see or what you're feeling or what you're experiencing, right now, God wins. Don't lose sight of that. 
So then we move on to Revelation chapter 5, verses 6 and 7. It says, Then, this is John again speaking, Then I saw one like a slaughtered lamb standing in the midst of the throne, and the four living creatures and among the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent to all the earth. We met them where? Revelation chapter 1. He went and took the scroll out of the right hand of the one seated at the throne. Now I want you to picture this, right? John sees the Lion of Judah, the conqueror, the soldier, the one wearing the breastplate, the one ready to rock and roll. And then on the other side, he sees this one that looks like a slaughtered lamb. Which one do you think is going to be brave enough to walk up and take the scroll from God's hands? You would think the soldier, the conqueror. But instead, it's the slaughtered lamb. It's the slaughtered lamb who says, I will see your will be done. It's the slaughtered lamb who says, I will show them mercy and I am the one who will do what needs to be done to save the world, to save all of creation. The four creatures, we read about them in in. Revelation 4 this morning. The four creatures are an eagle, an ox, a lion, and a human. One rabbi says that uh, they represent the mightiest aspects of all creation. A rabbi wrote, The mightiest of birds is the eagle. The mightiest among the domestic animals is the ox. The mightiest among the wild animals is the lion. And the mightiest of all these things is a human being. And God has taken all of these things and secured them to his throne. They are pieces of his throne. They're not the throne. If you go back and read Revelation chapter 4, this is how his throne was designed. These were built in and around his throne. Their position and their physical makeup and their actions in this scene highlight two things. One, even the mightiest of creation will submit to the throne of God. That's the mightiest armies, the mightiest animals, the mightiest waves, the mightiest volcanoes. Any and all things, no matter how strong they think they are in an earthly context, will submit to the throne of God when this is all said and done. Keep that in mind. And it also says that even the mightiest among all of creation were designed for one purpose, and that was to sit at the feet of God and worship Him. Because the truth is, that is what we're made for. We don't like to hear that because it means I can't be in charge anymore, I can't be my own king on my little throne. It means I have to chuck my crown away and say, I'm not in charge anymore. Guess who is? The Lord. The one who I am made to worship. The one who I am made to sing praises for. The one who I am only complete when I'm in his presence. 
and doing his will and obeying his call. John is supposed to see himself and everyone else, all of creation, sitting at the feet of the Lord for the sake of his own soul and for the sake of the world's. The focus, though, here is really on the slaughtered lamb. The slaughtered lamb. This is not the Jesus we met in chapter 1. Remember Jesus in chapter 1 of Revelation? With a double-edged sword coming out of his mouth, right? And his white hair, right? You get this, this very different picture of who Jesus is. And yet the, li- the lamb, not the lion, walks up to the one seated on the throne and takes the scroll from his hand. But there's an important point here. John doesn't say the lion disappears and then the lamb shows up. Why is that important? They're both present. Simultaneously both present. Both clearly represent Jesus. Both clearly represent his role in history and in the world. Both are present. Jesus is both a conqueror and a giver of mercy. We struggle with that. How can you be just and merciful at the same time? It's critical that we recognize we are also called to be just and merciful at the same time. It means, one, speaking truth in love. We talked about that twice in our membership thing this morning, right? Speaking truth in love. Speaking truth is the just part. In love is the mercy part. Because I don't know about you, but I sometimes struggle with this. I feel like if I'm speaking in truth... Which means what? I'm telling you what I see and I'm telling you how I think it is. That I might not be loving. And sometimes I think it's loving to not tell you the truth because I don't want to hurt your feelings. Neither one is true. Revelation's story is that, yes, there is mercy to be found in the Lord and the Lord wins, but also, if anything is just, recognize that there will be divisions made and there will be sides to be taken and you have a choice to be on my side or the other side. Eternally with me or eternally separated from me. And he gives each and every one of us a chance just as Brian Augustine gave me, he gives each and every one of us a chance by speaking the truth and telling us the truth at his word to decide to decide who's, whose we want to be. Do we want to be sitting at his throne? Which, by the way, is the only one that's going to be left standing when this is over. Or do we try to cling on to our own little thrones? And then, as a result, are destroyed. Or at the very least, are separated from God for all of eternity. I, I think 
I really do think that's what hell is. I think that's what God giving you what you want if you choose to be separated from him for all of eternity. He gives it to you. He says, you want it? Go for it. You want me for all of eternity? Go for it. Right? He lets you make a choice. He lets me make a choice. He lets all of us make a choice. And it's a choice that must be made because he is both merciful and just. So the last part of our text we're going to look at today is verses 8 through 10. It says, when he took the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Did you notice earlier they fell down before the throne of God? Now they're falling down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and golden bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slaughtered and you purchased people for God by your blood from every tribe and language and people and nation. That's, by the way, all of creation, right? Tribe, language, people, and nation. There's four there. What does that four mean? All of creation. Mm -hmm. Then you made a kingdom and priests to our God and they will reign on the earth. Jesus conquered evil not by death, not by violence, not by force, but by his own death, by being willing to be slaughtered for your sins and mine. As we read this and and consider this scene and what's happening here, it's important that we walk out of here today with this, this image that God is on the throne, that Jesus is king. Yes, both can be true at the same time. Why? Because God. Okay? It's this whole Trinity thing, right? Because God. Jesus is king. And I would ask you bluntly, have you forgotten that? Have you forgotten that somewhere in your life? This scene is designed to remind us who's in charge. Because from here, it gets crazy. We ain't seen nothing yet. From here, it starts to get a little crazy. And if we're not walking through that, recognizing that he is king, that he is in charge, if we forget that, even for a second, we are going to struggle. We are going to flounder. We're going to find ourselves wondering, God, where are you? He's still here. He's still in charge. Maybe we just forgot. If you don't yet know that Jesus is king, if you've never known that before, today is the day to recognize that. Today is the day to stop, to fall before the throne of our just and merciful God, who will bring both. (laughs) Who can make things right for you. Who can say, "Uh, yes, I am the kingdom that's going to be standing when it's all said and done. And guess what? You are with me. You are mine. I have called you to me. I love you. And I want you to be here with me. But you've got to give yourself to me and let me be in charge. 
He has already conquered evil. He's already balanced justice and mercy for you and I. He has already been crucified, so you and I don't have to be. It's very simple. It's available to you. You just have to come before the throne and take what he is offering because Jesus has already done all the work. The lamb has already been slaughtered. The lamb has already received the will of God and is living it out in this world and will live it out for all of eternity. And he just wants you to be with him. And, and as we get ready to stand and sing, I'm going to pray. We're going to sing, I think, talent offering is next. As we do our talent offering, I want you to consider, yes, I want you to offer your time, treasure, and talent to the Lord because I think those are the things that we can offer him. But most of all, what the Lord wants from us is our heart. He wants you to recognize that he loves you and to trust him enough to let him love you back and call you his own. Amen? Amen.